In a recent op-ed, Thomas Friedman floated the idea of Biden's putting Liz Cheney on the ticket with him in 2024. Yes, Democrats, let's take the advice of serially wrong pundits like Friedman and David Brooks or inexplicably employed hacks like Hugh Hewitt and Mark Thiessen. Let's fire Kamala Harris, who has, as far as I can tell, made one massive mistake as vice president. She's gotten wildly unfair media coverage. And let's replace the potential future president and generally progressive Democrat, you know, the kind who believes in voting rights for all Americans, a woman's right to choose, and combating climate change, with a Republican so far to the right, she claims Dick Cheney, who occupies the same place on the political spectrum as Genghis Khan, as her political hero. It's been the trend for some time that prominent voices on the right feel they have the authority to tell Democrats who to nominate and elect. This is particularly the case after the Republican Party loses the White House. But there's something particularly galling about it in this instance. People like the aforementioned Friedman are as responsible for the rise of politicians like Donald Trump and the party's descent into authoritarianism as anyone else. When Republicans win, they want to strip Democrats of all power and all rights. When they lose, they feel entitled to a consolation prize, like requiring approval over the candidates Democrats choose. It's fucking absurd. In the 2016 presidential election, the Democratic candidate won by almost 3 million votes. In 2020, the margin was almost 8 million votes. That's a mandate. The only reason it felt during the Obama presidency and feels now that Democrats are always on the defensive, always on their back foot, is because for the last decade, the Republican Party has become obstructionist. They have no policy agenda. They have no purpose larger than making it impossible for Democrats to pass legislation. Mitch McConnell has taken their anti-democratic maneuvering to a whole new level. In 2010, he said, the single most important thing we want to achieve is for President Obama to be a one-term president. In May of 2021, while President Biden's new administration was doing its best to put the country back together after four years of destruction and one and a half years of COVID, a massive economic crisis and a crisis of democracy after an attempted coup, McConnell said, 100% of our focus is on stopping this new administration. We're confronted with severe challenges from a new administration and a narrow majority of Democrats who want to turn America into a socialist country, and that's 100% of my focus. The lie about socialism is commonplace for Republicans. But the truly egregious thing about McConnell's comments is the complete disregard he has for the suffering of the American people. This isn't new. We've seen McConnell's ruthlessness in action for years, and it's the ruthlessness and lack of compassion that seem now to be embraced by the entirety of the Republican Party. Republicans are never made to consider the same kind of compromise. They're never expected to reach across the aisle. Chuck Todd, another inexplicably employed person, recently said, Mr. Biden has been unable to build a small coalition of governing Republicans to make the public effort at bipartisanship that some swing state Democrats had been pleading for. Ah, so it's Biden's fault that no matter what he does, no matter what the majority of the American people want, 
the Republicans refused to govern or allow the Democrats to do so. And by the way, anybody who still thinks bipartisanship is a worthy goal needs to seek medical help at once. Every single person who demands the Democrats cede some of their power to Republicans had a hand, either directly or indirectly, in getting Donald to the White House. Every single elected Republican is an extremist at this point. As I've said before, I am grateful Representative Cheney understands the importance of holding those accountable who participated in the insurrection, no matter the cost to her political future. But let's keep things in perspective. In 2020, Cheney voted against reestablishing net neutrality rules. She voted against expanding restrictions on online campaign ads or regulating foreign investment in elections. And she voted against impeaching Donald the first time around for obstruction of justice and abuse of power. In 2021, she voted against the Equality Act, which added sexual orientation and gender identity as protected classes. She voted against the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan, which provided millions of Americans with much-needed COVID relief, among other things. She voted against the For the People Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. She voted against background checks and the DREAM Act, the Infrastructure Bill, and Build Back Better. You get the idea. Liz Cheney holds extreme right-wing positions on almost all issues. She isn't just at odds with the will of Democrats, who again outvoted Republicans by almost 8 million votes in 2020. She is at odds with the majority of the American people. Any pundit or journalist who suggests Liz Cheney would be an appropriate running mate for a Democratic presidential candidate needs to rethink his or her career choice. Today, I'm really excited to have as my guest Brian Karam, a journalist extraordinaire, fellow litigant, <laughs> and friend. Um, he's been, he was an investigative journalist for years in both print and television. He worked as a White House correspondent on and off since 1986. So, this is a man who knows the ropes. And he's also a lead singer which I think is really cool, um, for a band called The Rhythm Bandits. And he's also the author of the upcoming book, Free the Press, which I've read, and I cannot wait to talk to him about in depth. In fact, we're going to talk about a lot of stuff. So let's get going. Hey, Brian, how are you? It's good to see you, Mary. It's yeah, great to see great. you, how too. You doing? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not going to answer that question. <laughs> well, we, well, we love you anyway. <laughs> Um, I, there are many reasons I, I wanted to talk to you, but uh, probably, you know, the most important is to get your perspective on what's happening with journalism today, what's, what, hap what happened with journalism over the last five years or so, yeah. and, and also the, your experience as a White House, as somebody in the press corps, um, with the sort of degradation of the status of White House correspondence. Uh, so let's start, though, with the reason I think um, you are one of many reasons, but the most obvious reason in recent history, you are a model for other journalists uh, in terms of getting at the truth, speaking truth to power. You had a sort of pivotal moment in an interaction with Donald uh, when he was still in the Oval Office. 
and you asked him a question. Uh, so I'd like I'd like you to talk us through that because I think it was a very important moment uh, in American journalism. September 23rd of 2020, I think, is what you're referring to. And that was uh, the uh, White House during the last or the, I don't know, about a year for a year didn't do press briefings. And then Kayleigh McEnany came in as the uh, press secretary and started doing press briefings again. However, she did them during the age of COVID. So she only had to face 14 reporters in the briefing room. And in the past, you know, as many as 100 and 150 people would stuff themselves into that room that seats only 49. So uh, she had it quite easy, actually. And she they set up the WHCA, the White House Correspondents Association, agreed to limit our we, – we, we were the ones who proposed it. 14 people, COVID, social distancing, everybody wear masks. The White House broke its own rules and invited friends of theirs into the to stand at the end of the room. So OAN reporter and sometimes the Epic Times, Gateway Pundit, some of the others would stand in the back and she'd call on them. And I kind of got sick of that crap. And I said, well, listen, if you're going to break your own rules, I'm going to show up once a week and uh, counter program at least and, and ask some real questions. <clears throat> so she would never call on me. But I would ask the questions anyway, you know, like if Donald Trump says that he's a defender of law and order, why does he keep breaking the law? And, you know, questions like that. And I would ask her pointed questions about policy. So on September 23rd, Trump showed up in the room, the Donald, and um, there was an empty seat. And I figured, well, it was me or OAN. So I'll take that seat. <laughs> so it was the last seat in the last row. And I sat down and I said, well, I don't know if he's even going to call on me because we have a, a history of fighting one another. Um, and, you know, he would always call me that Playboy reporter. And so I didn't know if he'd call on me or not. So but as soon as he got done speaking and God only knows what he was saying that day, it was just, you know, another mindless, endless barrage of bullshit. And the first thing he does is call, I'm the first one that he calls on. And I said, <laughs> all right, here we go. And so I said, win, lose, or draw, will you accept a peaceful transfer of power? And he said, if you quit counting the votes, it won't be one. And uh, he already disparaged the uh, the uh, voting process and said, you know, there's problems with the ballots. You know it, I know it. I go, I don't know it. Uh, you know, and, and so on that day, it, w it was historic in so much as I told you on that day where we're living now. He wasn't going to accept a transfer of power. He wasn't going to accept that he lost. And the insurrection was born on that day and the big lie. And yeah. that's, you know, that's where we're at now. Um, nobody even followed up on that question that day. The next question that came out of somebody's mouth was about uh, Meghan, Markle and Harry. And, you know, and, and, and he said, good, good. He, he almost did a, a, a Rodney Dangerfield impression. He said, good luck. He's going to need it. And, you know, and then the next day, Jonathan Carl from ABC did follow up on it. Kaylee McEnany called me a, 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 I don't know, a lunatic or something, but he goes, no, no, but what about the question? <laughs> and they never could answer it. And so we knew what Donald Trump was going to do after the election on that day. Yeah, I, I think that's totally accurate. And I have um, a couple of questions about what that meant going forward in terms of how that was handled or not handled by the media. But first I wanted to get back to what well, you said about the, 
<laughs> I'm sorry? But, well, how we handled it, we screwed it up. We should have done Well, yeah, like, and we'll, I think we need more details, though. <laughs> um, but you said after a, not just a crucial, what, what should have been a question that never needed to be asked, because I'm pretty sure that question has never been asked before, will you accept the result of a free and fair election because it's implied? But it had to be asked of him. Yes. And given his very squirrely answer, uh, the fact that there was no follow-up is kind of disturbing. So what's been going on With the in the press- White House press corps that, one, um, makes it difficult, if not impossible, or at least as an, from an outsider's point of view, for people to... Um, build on each other's questions? And also, why do fellow journalists not step in and continue to ask the same question of whomever it is, whether it's Donald or the press secretary, if the first time that question is asked, it's rejected? So in other words, we saw time and time again, a reporter would ask a question and would get blown off. And then the next person, the next reporter to ask a question would ask something completely different. I and always wondered, like, why don't, why don't from person to person to person, you keep asking the same question well, until a, it's answered? That's actually a really good question. And there's a couple of answers to it. First of all, we stink. Uh, secondly, <laughs> but the reason why we stink is it's systemic. Yeah. And uh, all right. So on the day of, like I practice and, re- and I don't rehearse, but I, I, I do my research on what I want to ask. And with Donald Trump, I also had to research how to ask it so that I didn't get blowback in the areas that, you know, that I knew he would blow back. I would keep them simple and pointed, the questions, because that's the only way I would get a direct answer out of him. And that's something that we all need to get better at. And um, that's something that sometimes we don't do real well. I, I know you've seen many a times where they'll put the camera on the reporter and we get a, a two-minute story before we get a question that's convoluted and the answer is shorter than the question and sometimes you wonder it is it just that the reporters want to be seen on camera well yeah sometimes it is but most of the time it's because we don't know how to ask a damn question Hmm. but the there is a lack of experience in the white house press corps these days and that goes back to the problems that i address in the book with journalism and that's because Every president since Ronald Reagan has destroyed the First Amendment, allowed uh, people, uh, allowed uh, journalism companies and and newspapers and television stations to buy themselves out. So there's a constriction in the business and prices, salaries have lowered. So you're not getting the best people anyway. And many times you're getting kids that have never had a job before in the White House. And that's that's antithetical to good journalism. You need a good deal of experience to know how to push back again, because these are very powerful people. And right. you've got to learn how to handle them and not become their tool. When I first watched this story, I always tell, is the first day I walked into that briefing room, the first person I met was Helen Thomas. And she's the one, that's the reason why my podcast is called Just Ask the Question. Helen schooled me up. She said, look, Brian, don't be afraid to ask a question. Whatever it is, you may not get an answer. You may not like the answer. They may not. They may give you a BS answer, but they cannot deny that the question's been asked. So ask mm-hmm. the question. Then it was Sam Donaldson who said, "Brian, look at the first row of that 
in, in the Brady briefing. Those seven seats, there's probably 250 years of experience. Um, <laughs> so listen to him. And then he said, uh, oh, and by the way, uh, Helen's probably got 200 of it. And then Helen said something smart to Sam, and Sam said, it's okay to have an unexpressed thought. And Helen said, Sam, when it comes to you, I have a lot of unexpressed thoughts. <laughs> and I thought, I love these people. I don't know what I'm doing for the rest of my life, but I love this moment. But he had a point, and, and there was institutional knowledge because of the constriction of our business and the fact that we now hire people straight out of college and boot them out after three to five years when they start making money instead of waiting to hire someone until they've had some experience is the reason why probably in that first row of the Brady briefing room today, there's maybe 70, 80 years experience instead of what was there uh, when, when I first got there. So that's the, that's the reason why you get. And then the other thing is, is you'll see reporters that work assiduously to figure out what they're going to ask. And they don't listen to the other reporters in the briefing room. So when something right. interesting is asked, you're, you know, it's like, you know, if Donald Trump would come out and go, oh, by the way, I declared the, the nation of Tonga today uh, uh, to be a war zone. Let's kill him. And, you know, and then the next guy would go, OK, so um, uh, uh, let me talk about peach futures. How's that going? <laughs> and, then, you know, and then you just completely skip over. It. You're not even listening. Right. And that is also a lack of experience. I have gone into those briefings with I usually go in with two questions in mind. And uh, we used to be limited to just two. Now the front row uh, takes up all the questions and very hard to get anybody else to ask one. But I would go in with two. And then I would listen as people uh, ask questions and I would go, well, wait a minute, I need to follow up on that. That wasn't answered. And some of the best questions I asked actually were following up on other reporters. And by the way, the question I asked on September 23rd was a follow up to a report in the Atlantic. Uh, that where they had said that Donald wouldn't do this and nobody thought to ask him. And I was going to, you, you got to ask him this. <laughs> you know, I would never, like you said, up until that moment, I would never dream of asking a president, uh, are you going <laughs> to agree to a peaceful transfer of power? It's kind of the cornerstone of our democracy, folks. Kind of. And, it, and it's what separates us from the banana dictatorships. So, yeah, I kind of thought you took it for granted, but you can't take anything for granted with such a narcissist as Donald. You can't. And, and it does underscore, though, a huge blind spot, uh, maybe, or unwillingness to challenge because he tried to experience Or inexperience. I think you're right. In, yeah. But it's also inexperience. It, people get so used. It's the reporting by, you know, I have to have access. I, I'm not going to, if I anger them, I'm not going to be on Air Force One. Or if I anger them, I won't be in the pool. I don't care. I, right. I, you know, I'm, a, I just, I'm one of those, I just don't give a shit. I've been on Air Force One. The food's great. You still sit in the back of the aircraft. And at the end of the day, they treat you like crap. I get treated better if I'm flying commercial. Food's yeah, not. And if you're really lucky, Donald, somebody in Donald's administration would give you COVID. Yeah, that, <laughs> that's, yeah. that's a plus. On, on some days, that was the plus. Ooh, yes. what's the draw today? I could get COVID from Kaylee. You know, it's, so, you know, yeah. So you, you got to give that up. You got to give, they use you when you're playing for access. And a lot of people forget that. And you proved that it's worthwhile to play hardball sometimes yeah. because what happened? Donald didn't like something you said or a question you asked or what he perceived to be disrespectful. Who knows? But your press pass was pulled. 
Yes. <laughs> and, so, uh, and you and I ended up with the same attorneys. <laughs> that's that's how we we know each other actually, because right. you ended up being represented by two of the most extraordinary people I know, Annie Champion and Ted Boudros, both First Amendment attorneys, uh, who guys. ultimately yeah. ended up uh, representing me um, for a totally unrelated thing. So, um, how did that play out? I mean, we know how it ended up, but how, which is with your vindication. Um, but you sued uh, for First and Fifth Amendment violations. And yeah. how, what, what was that process like? And how did the White House re- react? <laughs> well, how Donald Trump reacted, how you thought Donald would react. <laughs> there were people in the administration <laughs> who told me he went batshit. No, what did he oh, throw at you? <laughs> <laughs> Everything but the kitchen sink. <laughs> <laughs> I, he got so mad at me at the end. I was I was in the uh, Rose Garden and I started saying, "We're well, going to admit you lost the election, sir." And he <laughs> he made this look at me like I had I had just you know flipped him the bird or you know uh, <laughs> or something like that. And he went, well, in his view, you did. Come yeah. on, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> but um, he, yeah, I heard from people in the administration that when I sued him, he went nuts. But. Um, uh, he, he, he rarely, I mean, we had our public brawls, but behind the scenes, he avoided me as, you know, like the plague, uh, like, and would, and he avoided me better than he avoided the coronavirus, but you were a lucky man. Yeah. So, <laughs> but it was when it happened, it was, um, I was, I had just left the white house when I was notified that they were pulling, suspending my press pass for 30 days and Donald had taken two questions from me <laughs> not 10 minutes earlier on one of his little jaunts through the South lawn, you know, chopper talk, Yep. which I have to plead guilty. I was one of the ones who, who helped uh, uh, pioneer chopper talk because in the beginning, the Donald would walk past us as he left the uh, uh, White House after, as he uh, left his office and he would walk to the um, chopper and ignore us. And then one day I saw him walking out and he had on the red tie, the white shirt, the suit, and he's kind of chubby. And his hair, kind of, yeah, yeah. And well, you know, I'm sorry, sorry, badass. <laughs> okay, no ad hominem attacks, but anyway, <laughs> yeah, no ad hominem attacks. So you know, badass. So anyway, he was walking past me, and his blonde hair was blowing in the wind, and he, for all the world, reminded me of Rodney Dangerfield. And so I, I, he he ignored us, and I go, tough room, you know. And he turned around and came back and took my question that day. And then Chopper's talk started after that. So I I have my own self to blame for that. So he Thanks, I, Brian. Yeah, I know, right. Well, he, I'm also he hadn't shown up in the briefing room for three years. And when COVID right. started, he, he came point. into the briefing room and He's leaving, and I said, hey, thanks for showing up. Why don't you make it more often? And he goes, oh, my, you know, doing his own Rodney. And then, son of a bitch, if he didn't start showing up all the time, I go, I got to quit inviting this guy places. He shows up. He's desperate for attention. He shows up. So, he, you know, that day I had been, I had asked him two questions. I don't even remember what they were, but he took them. And I'm walking away, and I get a, 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 a text. I think it was a text message or an email saying my uh, press pass had been for, suspended for 30 days. Well, I knew uh, Ted Boutros through Jim Acosta, who had had his own problems with mm-hmm. uh, having them yank his press pass. And Jim and I were often, when I talk about following one another, I would follow Jim or Jim would follow me sometimes in these press briefings. And the one 
where he got in trouble was uh, right after the midterm elections. And I had asked uh, the Donald if he would, even if he's going to be impeached, would he continue to work with Democrats on other issues like, like you know, his predecessor did who got impeached, Bill Clinton? Would you continue to work with them on matters that are important to the country or is it just a war footing? And, and he goes, you know, war footing. And then he had started, you know, talking about Oprah from Winfrey. And I said, hey, what's with all this Oprah love? So he accused me of being a, a comedian. And then as I started to press him on, on possibly being impeached, which he was later twice, he went nuts and he said, you can't have another question. And they had already called on Jim. And I said, well, since it's Jim, hey, here you go. So <laughs> Jim had asked the question. <clears throat> they had accused him of trying to yank a, 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 a microphone out of a young right. uh, woman's hand and that wasn't yeah. what happened i was there not at all so they, we all saw the video that yeah. is not at all what yeah. happened and you know uh, that day steve alex uh peter uh, alexander from uh nbc defended him saying look he's a good reporter you know no he's a mean guy and i don't know why cnn hires him and so they tried to suspend him and he got cnn hired ted butros for that and that following year uh the uh hefner foundation with christy hefner at its head had given ted butros a first amendment award for the for the work that he did. And so I met Ted, me and Ted and uh, uh, Jim got together and, you know, I, I think we smiled and had, you know, glad hand and drinks. And I said, I know I'm going to end up needing you at some point in time. <laughs> and, and so I, I kept his name and number and I called Jim right after I got the notice that I had been suspended. And I, I got uh, the number from Jim and I called uh, Ted. And then I told my people at, at Playboy what was going down. And then their attorneys all rallied around and decided, well, you know, screw this. We're going to fight it tooth and nail. And so Ted took on my case and uh, was very successful in in uh, suing. And, and it was Ann and Ted and, uh, you know, a few other people that got together that that uh, did it. And, you know, we we had to go to federal court where, you know, they tried to the, the funniest argument during that. And, I, you know, to me, I still laugh at it, it, even though, you know, it was it was professionally horrifying for me. But. The White House tried to argue that if they couldn't kick me out, then there would be, you know, uh, then reporters could walk through the White House mooning people if they if we wanted. And the judge said, you know, I don't think you have to worry about rogue mooning reporters. So that's... Wait, th no, okay, wait a second. I, I mean, I know that uh, probably one of Donald's few skills is hiring the worst possible attorneys. But yeah. was that a... Seriously, an argument they made yeah, in federal court. That was a serious argument they made in federal court. That was the best argument they can make in federal court is that if they weren't allowed to punish me, then there would be reporters, you know, who could meander through events in the Rose Garden and just, you know, drop trial and moon them. And the judge just laughed, you know, and there was a panel of judges who took it up. And then there was even, there were even Donald Trump appointed judges who just said, uh, a no. <laughs> because it's it's one thing to be punished unfairly in the private sector for voicing an opinion um, or punished because it's the private sector and some, you know, some companies don't want you saying certain things. But it's another thing entirely when the ostensible leader of the country who should have read the constitution, but clearly hasn't is, is wielding that kind of power against journalism and journalists. 
And he's done it many times. I mean, he did it. Um, he sued me um, and my publisher. He's suing the New York Times again on First Amendment grounds. So yeah, I asked about that in there too. You know, the when yeah. the first pandemic, when the pandemic first broke, he had sued the New York Times for an opinion piece. And I said, "How do you sue somebody for an opinion piece?" And here was his answer: It was the wrong opinion. Now. That is, there's nothing more authoritarian than that response. And the fact that that wasn't followed up on, you know, it's, it's like, guys, he's telling you that the only opinion that he'll tolerate is one that kisses his ass. And that, of was, course. And that, and, 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 and he put it right out there. And that's the, that's the authoritarian fascist um, type of stuff we have to, you know, fight against. And, and we saw that, a crescendo, a build, I don't know how else to put it, but on January 6th, that's what led to, and I don't want that to be act one in a, an authoritarian coup over the United States. And that's what we face. That's the real worry today. Yeah. Well, I think you're, I think you're right when you said that it started the day you asked that question. So I think the insurrection was actually act two. Um, and we'll see where we go from there. But I do, I want to ask you about the media seeming need to normalize him. But before that, you said something earlier that I thought was really interesting about, um, the disintegration of journalism as an institution. And it seems that we can say that about many institutions, um, yeah, we saw we saw what happened during the Trump administration with the State Department and with the Department of Justice. So it's almost it, it almost feels epidemic. Um, and also, it's not like these things happened overnight. I think they worsened dramatically uh, between 2017 and 2021. Yeah, but there clearly there were weaknesses already, um, and y- you're telling us about how the the press corps has changed so much uh in what four decades yeah it's been you know, to go from helen thomas to whatever brian ducey i don't know whatever that guy's name is Peter. the fact that donald was letting in conspiracy theorists and oan and newsmax um has made things worse or as i said like hasten the decline so how do you um, well, I liken it this way. It's like the guardrails have been removed. He's a symptom of the problem. And we're yeah. kind of like Wiley Coyote after we go over the cliff. And, you know, gravity doesn't seem to work until we look down. You know, it's like, and you look down, <laughs> and that was the Donald Trump era. It's like yeah. at that point in time, the ground was gone. But we had already gone over the cliff. And it started yeah. with Roger, Roger Ailes, that minion of Satan, Richard Nixon. Nixon picked up Rod Rails yep. in Philadelphia, who was working for the Mike Douglas show, brought him in, to, you know, as part of Nixon's Southern strategy, and he need, he hated the press. Remember yep. famously in, what was it, 62 or something, when he lost the governorship of, Al- of uh, California, <laughs> Alabama, of California, he said, look, you won't have Dick Nixon to kick around anymore. And the line right. SOB let that last for a year or two, and now he's running, you know, and then he's running for president in 68. Yep. <clears throat> and remember who Nixon was. He tried to subvert the, the war process in, the, in Vietnam and make them hold off to a, there was, we were close to peace accords prior to the election and he tried to 
railroad that and don't make peace until after he comes in. I think he succeeded, yeah. actually. Yeah, and, and the, yes. So he was a seditionist. He was yep. a traitor to America. He was a punk. Right. You know, he, was, he was bad news. And he didn't get away with it. So he had brought in Ailes, and uh, if he had had his chance and could put into place what he wanted, we would have seen a faster disintegration. But what happened was Ronald Reagan. And I maintain Ronald Reagan set the table. He was the worst president up to that point in my lifetime. And every right. public since then has been worse. There Absolutely. has not been one decent Republican president since Eisenhower. So, uh, and, and some will go back to Teddy Roosevelt, but I'll go to Eisenhower. I think he was, you know, a decent guy. But as far as that goes, he, Ronald Reagan, first of all, removed all, he, he allowed unfettered capitalism. And I'm a fan of capitalism. Buy as many copies of my book as you want. <laughs> and we'll tell you how to do that later. It's a, buy them. But journalism and capitalism shouldn't be uh, uh, tethered together. Because right. what happens when you, when that happens, which is what Ronald Reagan made sure happened, what happens is that you end up consuming the news that you want instead mm-hmm. of the news that you need. And we, mm-hmm. on this end, begin selling you what you want That's instead right. of what you need. So anybody who says there was a golden age of journalism, I haven't seen one yet. I'd like to. But it used to be better. And everyone compares mm-hmm. Walter Cronkite. You know, back when Walter Cronkite just gave you the facts. Well, Walter Cronkite also did it and gave you his opinion. Yes, he did. And he w- but the reason why you accepted his opinion was because you respected his gravitas and the fact when he went to Vietnam and put together a documentary and at the end of it said it's, it, it's increasingly becoming clear to this reporter that we're going to have to go- negotiate our way out of it, that this is not winnable. When he did that, people accepted it because he had also covered World War II. He was a beat reporter. He had a lot of experience. Name one anchor on the air today that has anywhere near the gravitas or experience of, of Walter Cronkite. I, I dare say you can't. You can't name anyone that I can. No. That you, there are some that are I, I like and personally and are friends and, and are good people, but not with the gravitas of a Walter Cronkite or, or Tom Brokaw. Or even, you know, I mean, there we've lost that. Robert Murrow. Yeah, Edward R. Murrow was— uh, Robert, yeah, Edward R., sorry. Yeah, Edward, but, you know, Edward R. Murrow said something in 19—and it's in the book. He said something at the RTNDA Radio Television News Directors Association meeting in 1958. He came out as the keynote speaker and said, if we don't fix our problems now, we are going to be a slave to propaganda and slogans. Now that— Wow, prescient. That, yes, 64 years ago, we knew what the problem was, and we went the wrong way. Do you think, in addition to the lack of experience or the inability, I think, uh, to get experience, I think that the the system has, has um, basically made it harder and harder to work your way up from a beat reporter to a, a revered anchor, but didn't the format also help um, ground yeah. the news and the news the fairness caster. Did. And because that, that's what gave us news. The fairness doctrine, although there were very few people who were ever prosecuted for violating it, set parameters by which national news, public affairs broadcasting on the local level as well. And, and look, if we're going to be honest, and we should be, the, the biggest problem in journalism today is there's no community journalism. 
That's right. where they, that's the backbone of journalism. And while in my book, I one of the things that really pissed people off, I guess the people who own you know media, is I I say we should use uh, antitrust legislation to break up the large media empires. That pisses people off. But the real, the easier, the easiest solution, the best solution, the first solution is to build from the ground up. We need to subsidize and go back to subsidizing community newspapers. There are vast informational deserts in this country where there's no local newspaper. And it's state and local and federal governments that have done it. You used to have to, you know, some of the most money that these small publishers make, they don't make a lot. So they were subsidized by government because government had to publish public notice ads. And those help build communities. Lawyers and salesmen would read these you know, public service ads and go, oh, look, here's an estate sale. Oh, there's a new lawyer in town. Oh, by the way, here's a meeting of the city council coming up on Monday, and here's what they're covering. We don't have reporters who even cover city council. You know, it, at most, they view right. them remotely. But we don't have that anymore. And that helped build a community. You and I may disagree on national issues, but everybody wants clean water, you know, and yep. clean air and, and a street in front of them that's paved. And by the way, that, that stoplight's not working. Why isn't it working? And all of those over to the local level, and most people agree on all these things. And so that helped build communities. And we don't have that anymore. All we have are divisive. What's left is divisive name calling at the national level. It's not even journalism. We don't have that anymore, which also means we don't have accountability for elected officials exactly. who actually, and who have demonstrated, at least on one side of the aisle, that they actually don't give a shit. They don't. If we have clean water or clean air because they're pro big business or something. So there's that lack of accountability. And I think also another uh, terrible result of getting rid of the fairness doctrine and failing to um, support or subsidize local reporting, is we also end up with, with corporations like Sinclair taking over um, local broadcasting and um, basically making it uh, this monolith of yes. opinion. It's, it's, Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that's so dangerous. It, it's, chain store, it's chain store journalism. It's what exactly H.L. Mencken warned about in 1926. He called them dung heaps. <laughs> what you see in one city with Sinclair is what you see in another city. It's interchangeable news. They produce it, mass produce it, and therefore you don't get real news. There used to be, and in the 80s, right before they dumped the rules on ownership, uh, newspapers and television stations were trying to limit the number of TV stations and newspapers an individual company could own. And had that passed and had Congress taken that seriously, we'd be in a far different boat than we are today. Sinclair is, and I'll give you another one that's really bad, and that's iHeartRadio, which started in San Antonio's Clear Channel, became iHeartRadio in my home. Oh, that came from Clear Channel? Yeah. And, oh, boy. And, that, and those, uh, new, those radio stations, sometimes in the same market, like in Louisville, Kentucky, my hometown, there used to be, you know, 12 or 15 radio stations owned by 12 or 15 different companies. Now it's all iHeartRadio, which, by the way, gave us that idiot whose name I will not remember. Uh, that's SOB. <laughs> and, you know, that's son of a... Yeah, we don't want to uh, yeah. raise him. Yeah, I don't... Yeah, no, bury him deeper. But um, that's, yeah. that, that's what led to talk radio. And if you look at... Uh, News on television, 
you know, and I've been on these panel shows with the networks. I mean, that's what you've got. It's cheap to produce these news, uh, these so-called news shows uh, with an anchor and say three people sitting on a on a panel. And then we argue for five minutes and then nothing's resolved. No news is broken. We smile and we go on about our business. It's just infotainment. And it's what, you know, one side wants to hear this. One side wants to hear that. Who can get in at, at that person and get the best dig? And information is sorely lacking. How do you explain the fact, though, that um, the right completely dominates that space? Well, because that James Carville said something about that um, and in his book, and I interviewed him for Playboy uh, magazine years ago. One of my favorite interviews I've ever done was traveling with uh, with James on the road. And I'll, I'll, I'll digress to tell that story real quick. Oh, that's awesome. We were on Larry Flint's private jet. Oh, my God. Playboy interview after he had appeared on The People versus Larry Flint. So we fly from Memphis to, I think it was uh, Seattle or, no, Portland, and where he's going to meet his wife and do a, uh, a speech with her on Valentine's Day. And as we get off the plane, he spent three days with me and we're doing the interview and he gets off the plane and here's uh, Mary Matlin walks up to him in his r- flowing red chiffon gown. And James says, my, my, honey, but you have a fine ass. <laughs> he turns to me, looks at me, says, Brian, you better say fine figure for that magazine of yours. I don't want my young daughters growing up knowing I'm the hound that I am. And <laughs> he, he, he had this great thing that he said that's so true. He goes, he doesn't like what the Republicans stand for, but he has to admire their work ethic. And yeah. so from that, I have extrapolated, you know, one is a party of no heart and one is a party of no head. And the Democrats think that they've beaten Donald Trump and they've only not. <laughs> no, I, I mean, they haven't at all. And um, I mean, they've of- beat him into office, but they haven't beaten yeah. down what they no. haven't addressed the core concerns that caused Donald Trump to rise in the first place. And that's, right. why, and- and that's why the right has cornered, to your question, that's why the right has cornered talk radio because it gave people a voice that you know during the fairness doctrine you wouldn't put somebody on who was anti-vax you go what the hell that's not you know those are facts you can't dispute right. we all got polio shots i remember lining up in school and you wanted to go to school by god you got shot you got i mean you know you got vaccinated uh, yeah. bless Ruba. now we let these idiots you know uh, proliferate because they make money there's no fairness doctrine there's no way to and so while the people who are are slave to facts will give facts. Those idiots who want to tell you the world is flat and uh, the Holocaust didn't happen. And by the way, if you drink your own urine and take horse dewormer and shoot up Clorox, you're going to be fine. Those people, and and then some of us who know it's bullshit will also watch it just for the freak factor. Going, look at those sons of bitches! Oh, they're dumb as hell, and they're making money and spreading the word. So it, that's why they've, they've kind of cornered the market. Freak shows always sell at a circus. And anger and grievance, which is Do- yeah. Donald is like a yes. pro at Bitterness being and aggrieved, yeah. stoking yeah. grievance. Yeah. But that also brings me back to the whole normalization thing. Um, one of the reasons, and, and this has happened, the media has done this with Donald from almost the beginning. Yep. And they never seem to have learned their lesson. Nope. And I think Democrats are doing this with their colleagues, like they, 
I mean, you, you really do, you really don't understand who Mitch McConnell is. My head almost exploded the other day when somebody asked President Biden about Mitch McConnell and his obstruction, and and Biden basically said, friend. "Oh, he's a friend of mine. I really like him." Like, oh my God, he's evil, and he's going, he's out to destroy you, and he's out to destroy America. So, so what is it that makes it? so difficult for people and i don't i don't just mean in the political divide but people who who are genuinely on the right side of things you know they're pro democracy they're pro free press which needs a, a democracy and yet they either can't identify the problem they don't want to go after the problem I, and i think for example of what is fox doing in a white house briefing room well, that's a good question. I don't know. Well, they're not asking questions uh, uh, that would evoke answers on policy. I can tell you that. Uh, right. But th they deserve. Look, everyone deserves a seat at the table. I, you know, I don't mind anyone. Being, you know, there was a, used to be a guy in the briefing room years ago who was a, a defrock minister, and he would. All, and my favorite story about that is he was always asking about Bigfoot and aliens and i don't mean illegal aliens unless they're you know i came from the star cluster you know far far away but he would <laughs> he, he, and one day and i think it was mike mccurry or joe lahawk i can't remember who it was i think it was mike mccurry he had this big briefing book he lays it down and he calls on he had been getting some tough questions he calls on lester or roy or whatever his damn name was i can never remember it and he and he goes isn't it true that you all captured bigfoot and you've now got him in, uh, you know, uh, Area 51 with with the space aliens. And so McCurry goes, he starts thumbing through his, you know, his, his book and he's in the briefing book. And he's, and, the, and the guy goes, uh, uh, Mike, he goes, uh, uh, wait a minute. He keeps thumbing through, thumbing through. And finally he goes through, takes about a minute doing this for dramatic effect, points to a page, looks up at him and goes, no. <laughs> that, was, that was it. And so... We went back to, you know, afterwards there was somebody who said something like, uh, why do you keep calling on this guy? He's a fool. And he goes, because he makes the rest of you look like fools. There's no <laughs> doubt that, that anyone can, anyone, and you should allow every side to be there. You don't have to call on them. You don't have to encourage them. You don't, but you give them the light because that way when they, when you don't, what happens is they proliferate in you know, mushrooms grow in darkness. And then when mm. you give them a, a sounding board, it's far more vitriolic, which is what we got with Trump. We didn't right. diffuse any of the problems. The, the briefing room, you should view the nation in that way as a, a boiling kettle. Don't put the lid on it. Let the lid off. And that way you don't have an explosion. You just have dumb asses steaming out. And nobody. And then you can see them for what they are. But when you don't uh, give them the light and you don't allow them to be with others, you don't learn what the nuttiness is until it's too late. And then they get uh, jobs at Fox and their own television and radio shows, and we all get screwed in the process. Because people, there are enough nutty people. You ask, why do reasonable people believe some of this stuff? Well... Why do why do reasonable people get caught by three card money? Why do, why do they go to the the sideshow at the circuses? Because they get people can anyone can be conned, and Donald learned that better than anybody. He'll con you in a heartbeat. Everything he does is a con. You know that better than I do. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> he's been doing pieces. I know it's it's a hard thing to wrap your head around because you don't want these people to be you, you want to go. No, this isn't fact that they should not have the ability to be seen or heard. But it, or legitimized. That's what worries me. They get legitimized, and and they shouldn't be legitimized. But the best way to make sure they're not legitimized is to give them a seat, and then you don't have to call on them. There's no reason they will be there covering it. They will be seen for what they are. But mm-hmm. when you call on them, when you give them attention, that's when you legitimize them. And the, one of the best things I've ever seen a, a, a actually a president do. Biden is done with one very extreme member of the press, and I won't mention him because I don't want to legitimize him. But mm-hmm. I've gotten in, into disagreements with him. He's a bit of a close talker, didn't vaccinate himself. And I was like, dude, you know, the rule is six feet and I'm vaxxed. So, you know, I love you, but stay the hell away from me. And then, you know, he started giving the comparison. Well, I feel like, uh, you know, I'm yell- wearing a, a yellow star. And it's, this is not Auschwitz. Nobody's throwing you in the oven. Just stay the hell back. And then he'd give me, well, some American Christians believe. And I go, yeah, yeah, I'm an American Christian. Quit preaching to me and go get vaxxed and shut up. I'm not going to mention them. I'm not going to mention who they are in the in the White House. They give him access. But you don't really see or hear. He wants to make it all about himself. And they haven't been able, he hasn't been able to do that. Because while their access is there, the attention is not. And that's the distinction I think is important. It's being smart enough to know that by giving them access, you also diffuse a lot of the crap. You know, their biggest argument is, look, you're afraid of me. You won't let me in. Well, we let you. Yeah, or it martyred them, right? Yeah, and, and, and you don't make them a martyr. That's yeah. it. You, you get that, and that's the best way to get rid of it is to it is. let them a, it, allow to be a and, martyr. And yet so often it feels like we're being held hostage. Yes, we are. But we're being so. hostage by ourselves. You know, we... That's what kills me is, you know, the American public goes, well, this and this and this. And I go, well, you're buying this shit. You know, we're selling shit and you're buying shit. We should be producing better. But why do we have to? Because you'll buy what we sell. And that's why journalism can't be tethered to capitalism. Because it's lowest common denominator. We'll sell you the easiest, cheapest thing it is to sell. It's planned obsolescence, you know. And so you've got to hold us to a higher standard, which is why the guardrails were in place to begin with. And removing them only removed our responsibility. And we became, you know, look, when I first got into this business, 80% of what you see, read, or hear was dictated by two dozen companies. Today, five companies dictate what you see, read, or hear, about 90% of it. And I guarantee you, you know, as much as they say, well, we're, we're all liberal media. No, none of those board of directors are liberal. They're all conservative. None. They all want money. That's why, it, that's what drives American journalism is money. Money and yet, what I, there also, though, seems to be, um, a character flaw. <laughs> well, there I, always I, is if you're just greedy. <laughs> but, well, but he, you know, like going back, the the right has accused the media of having a liberal bias forever. Yep. It does not. No. You know that it does not have a. a and yet, to this day, um, supposedly neutral um, networks or so-called journalists 
seem to feel that they have to bend over backwards to uh, go too far in the opposite direction to diffuse that accusation. Yes, um, and we do. Th- I, I that's part of the just, pressure of the right, by the way, they make that's that's we don't frame arguments very well. We allow ourselves to be manipulated by politicians. We get goose flesh when they go, ah, you're 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 tilting the left, and you want to go, well, really, sure, I'll prove you wrong. I'll go after, I'll go after the left, which is what they want. But why? Why is why are people so? What? What does anybody care? Well, like Jim Jordan thinks, or any Republican senator thinks. Like, what? Do, what do they care? Because again, that's a lack of experience. That's you see people that are covering. And that's a lack of experience among reporters, and with managers, it's because they are in many places the in the owners of media. And the upper echelon in journalism are friends with those people in power. And True. that's yeah. why you have. They're all going to the same parties. Yeah, they all, when you all go to the same parties, when you're all visiting the same people, or, you know, and Matt Gates getting his first high school date when he's 35, you know, when, in those cases, <laughs> you, you've got problems. And, that, and we're not going to, yeah. it, it, it's not going to be solved unless we have some real strict guide you know guardrails for for journalism and we increase the number of reporters in this company and look Ben Bagdickian who was uh one of the one of my favorite reporters of all time you know mm-hmm. he was, he was amazing yeah from the Washington uh, uh post and was the guy who you know the Pentagon Papers and all that so mm-hmm. you know, but one of the things that he said you're not going to really have uh independence until you have a diversity of ownership and it's mm-hmm. not just a diversity of race, creed, or color. It's a diversity of thought. And that way, if you keep those guardrails on and have a, a, a greater diverse ownership and more reporters, you'll see a lot. Because, you know, to your point, what you were talking about, about why do we always go along together? Go, look at the Rob Reiner movie. It was a spotlight or whatever it was about, you know, the beginning of the second Gulf War when everybody was saying, hey, we've got these. Uh, weapons of mass destruction, and that's why George W. Bush decided we had to go- wag the dog. No, I think it's called Spotlight. I can't. It wasn't Spotlight. Was about the Catholic Church and. Oh no, no, that's right. No, there was something else. It was, I can't remember now. Now, now you're. I can't remember the name. I have to look it up. But it was okay. about um, the guy who played the Hulk. I think was was one of the uh, 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 guys. It was reporters from Pittsburgh, and mm-hmm. they uncovered the fact that there were no weapons of mass destruction, and that. Perhaps we were being lied to by the government, but nobody believed them because the hierarchy, you know, hierarchy and the New York Times and the Washington Post and others were all buying this this baloney that uh, Bush was selling that there were weapons of mass destruction. And that's not what it was. And there was one newspaper group that did it and it they they won awards for it, but nobody listened to him in the beginning. We need if we had more people doing the work, there'd be more stories like that. And if we had protection for journalists so they wouldn't go to jail if they have confidential sources, we'd have more stories like that. And if we broke up media monopolies and had more, we'd have more stories like that. It's hard. I can't imagine a story like that being broken today in this day and age in the media environment that we have. No, it wouldn't be. And it, 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 I think you're, it does start at the top, and I, I often wonder, do only re- people on the right have tons of money, or is it that when you get tons of money, you become a Republican? I can't figure <laughs> it out. Like, there's just no, 
<laughs> no equal and opposite reaction on the left. And it, it mystifies me because there must be some rich. Well, Democrats. there are, of course. I but I, I, I think the, the thing is that it goes back to, again, is the fact that we have in this day and age um, a built-in bias towards money and a part, two parties, one with no heart and one with no head. And the one that has the heart hasn't with their head figured out how to make it, you know, mm-hmm. work for them. So do you think that uh, the the normal, the tendency to normalize, in this instance, Donald's egregious behaviors uh, and to continue to promote him as a, a potential candidate in 2024 is driven by that capitalist tendency? Yep, absolutely. And Donald Trump, if nothing else, knows how to, knows how to manipulate that. Yeah. Um, well, I think, you know, I, I know that you, you started to lay some of this out before, but I think it's a great segue to your book, which everybody should read. It's, it's, a, it's an important book. Uh, the mo- name of, and we'll let me get- interrupt you quickly. The name of the movie was Shock and Awe. That was the name of it. Okay. <laughs> which is not nearly as important yes. as the name of your book, which is Free, Free the, the Press. Press. Yes. Um so the what's drew me into it initially, I mean besides the fact that I I know and like you. Well, thank you. Is the story, you know, your story as, you know, starting uh in journalism and the people you admired and the people you learned from, you talked earlier about Helen Thomas and Sam Donaldson. And, and, and it just brought me back. I have such nostalgia for those days. And, and Sam because, a great guy, by the way, he wrote the foreword to the book. I got to plug him because he was, he, he really is one of the first, one of the first people I ever met in the business that I, you know, I had such a high respect for and he was so good to young reporters and Helen the same mm-hmm. way. And yeah. we need that today. Yeah. Uh, mentors yeah. and, and people who care about the craft um, enough to want to see it continue uh, with integrity in the next generation. And and I don't, I think you're right. I don't think that that is the case anymore um, in part because there isn't continuity um, and it is about, making money. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I don't think neither one of us is saying that there isn't still great journalism. Um, but it seems to be more on an individual. No, there is. I mean, there's, there's still great investigative. There are some Uh, great journalists out there and the problem is we need more of them. (laughs) We need more of them and we need to pay them properly. And, but there's also no, there seems to be no overarching vision. Um, People don't even the, understand what it is that we really are supposed to do. They think the idea but, is that you do kowtow to, to the, the government. That is, they, they look at themselves as nothing more than stenographers. And that's and they don't understand the historic significance. You know, when I started pushing back on on Trump, on, on, on the Donald, I heard young reporters going, oh, my God, he's just doing it for himself. Blah, blah, blah. And then the, what I respected were the – uh, producers, the photographers, the technicians who had been in that White House for 30 years, they had the real experience. And they went to the young reporters and said, no, 
He's not doing anything different than what Helen and Sam and all those others used to do. And that's true. I, I, I didn't yeah. blaze any trails. I just, I just, I went to the highway that they hadn't maintained for a while and decided, what the hell, go up that highway. But it was how I was taught. You, I have a healthy, you know, Sam Donaldson once said, I, you know, he was accused of being rude. And he goes, I'm not advocating rudeness, but I'm mm-hmm. far more worried about a reporter who's too disinclined to ask a good question. But there, there has been, there was a, a massive shift, though. The relationship between an administration and the White House press corps has always been uh, guarded and sometimes adversarial. Yes, that's the way it's supposed to be. But of course, with Donald, it was, um, it Adam. was, comba- but worse, vindictive, yeah. and it has. I've never been able to understand. Why, and and I say, the reason I say that is because I think maybe that's why, especially these less experienced reporters, weren't willing to get in his face like you were, because he's such a horrible person and he's so punitive. But the, with the press in general, they still refuse to stand up to a man who basically threatens their existence. You know, because a lot of a free press, as we said earlier. I'm sorry. Some of them were afraid of being fired. Some of them are too scared to ask questions. Some of them have no idea how to propose one. And some people don't know that they're supposed to be there to to do that. It's a combination of factors that lead to it. I am far more, I have concern, great concerns about both sides of that. Mm -hmm. If you're going to get fired for doing your job, then that's another reason why we need to break up media monopolies. So we can get more companies in there that will hire people that want to do the job right. And we need managers who want to do the job right and know how to manage people. You know, there are reporters that go, this is what I think. This is what I think. And I hear it all the time in the White House. And I'm going, who are your managers? When I manage reporters, if a reporter comes up to me and says, this is what I think, I go, I don't give a shit what you think. I barely care what I think. What do you know? (laughs) You know, what do you know? What can you verify as fact? So that's one problem. If you don't know how to do the job, that's the other problem. And and if you yeah. don't even understand the history, there are people who don't even there I've run into reporters who don't even know who Helen Thomas is. And and that and, and and it's young female reporters. I'm going, you have no idea the ground that was broken for you by her. You have no idea the, the glass ceiling she broke down and that others that you know that were there during her time broke down. And to, to not know who these people are, to at least know the history of your own profession is frightening to me. And I, I, I'm going, where did you, you know, you don't have to have a degree to be a reporter. I'm not advocating, I'm, I'm, I'm going, but if you need to be, if you're going to be a reporter, at least know what the hell your job is that you're supposed to be doing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it creates this uh, vacuum. Yeah. Well, there's a huge vacuum in the media world today. Of, of people who just don't know what the hell it is they're doing. So we've t- we've talked a lot about these very depressing trends, <laughs> um, and uh, the fact that for some reason um, journalists and media corporations don't seem to get that they should be neutral as to the facts, but pro democracy. <laughs> Yeah, and, and label opinions as such. Quit reporting your opinions as news. I mean, exactly. That's what I really hate watching on the news today 
are reporters who stand up and go, well, this is what I think. Like I said, I don't care what you think. I, you know, I, I want to be an opinion writer. Well, look, man, I'll tell you what. After you get 10 or 15 years of experience, come to me and I'll let you write an, uh, an opinion piece. And by the way, I'm going to label it as opinion. But when you're on my <laughs> air, if you're going to give your opinion, you're going to be out of a job. Because I That's don't right. care what your opinion is. The American public, what it needs is news and vetted facts that we can all agree upon. And then you have you, you have an opinion based on mutually agreed upon facts. But we have alternate facts. <laughs> yeah, which is also Lies. known as... Yeah. Lies or just, you know, people also said there are two realities. No, there aren't. Nope. There's one reality. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, everybody else is living in some fantasy world. A very terrifying one. Well, you know, and what I give as an example of that is I go, well, you can't trust scientists. Uh, you know, I, and I go, well, wait a minute. Does the Earth revolve around the sun or the sun revolve around the Earth? Well, I'm not an mm -hmm. idiot. I know that the Earth revolves around the sun. I said, ah, but scientists changed their minds. Years ago, we believed the other. So right. why, are you, why are you disparaging scientists now? You obviously follow science a little bit, and they can't follow that because right. people live in their own heads, their own news silos. They don't get out and see the world as it really is. They see the world as they want it to be. Well, yeah, and the silos are a huge problem, but also what is a huge problem is that the, you know, some allegedly uh, neutral news programs go the opposite way from staying away from opinions, which is good, but then they think that straight news reporting means giving both sides equal time yeah, and, that's and not <laughs> countering the side that's lying. Well, look, on some stories, there's one side on some stories there's two sides on some stories there's more than two sides mm -hmm. here's and i'll give you an example there's one side the earth revolves around the sun there's one mm -hmm. side the earth isn't flat there's one right. side the holocaust happened there's one side vaccines work you stupid morons and, yep. and you, the, so I'm not going to. There's one side. Biden won the 2020 yeah. presidential election. Yeah, there's one side. And, and I'm not going to give any attention to those people who say otherwise. And to me, one of the greatest, one of the greatest days of fear I've ever lived. And I've covered wars and I've covered insurrections and I've covered riots in many American cities and in foreign cities. January 6th was an insurrection a near coup attempt. Donald started it. Donald encouraged it. And he and him and one of his two interchangeable kids, Moron One and Moron Two, got up and pushed for it. And then he had Ruli Giuliani going trial by combat. And they marched up and stirred those people up and got them to do it. Now, I don't want to hear anybody telling me that it was a walk in the park and it was a peaceful protest. That was bull. I was there. Mm -hmm. They threw, I had a friend of mine who got sucker punched in the head. I had my life threatened. I saw them beat people. I know for a fact that if they had gotten a hold of Mike Pence, they'd have strung him up by that scaffold they made. If they got a hold of Nancy Pelosi, they would have killed her. The, the Confederate flag never once flew in the Capitol during the, the uh, Civil War, and it was in the Capitol that day. Everybody from top to bottom responsible for that should be investigated, should be prosecuted, and by God arrested. And that goes for Donald. And I'm sorry, that's a fact. And if you don't like the fact, I was there and I saw it with my own eyes. I have firsthand knowledge of what happened that day. And it was an anathema to the democratic process. 
It was dangerous. It was treasonous. Every member of Congress who was involved should be expelled and prosecuted. End of story. That's the one fact thing that bugs me the most is to, first they said it was a, you know, a, a, a false flag, and then it was Antifa, and then it was Black Lives Matter, and then it was, and now, you know, the latest, it was a peaceful protest. It was none of those things. Now, there were some people that went there that I call like NFL weekend warrior types, you know, the guys that go to mm-hmm. the game and pull their shirts off and paint their faces. You know, you remember mm-hmm. the large Wookiee guy? That those those people, but they got dragged into it, and they're as guilty as anybody else because when the violence started, they jumped in. It was a groupthink, and there were people that were agitating it, and Donald Trump promoted it. And he made it worse, and he let it go on yeah. for three hours. He let it go on for three hours. And he made sure nobody intervened. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And, and, and so those poor cops and I, you know, I knew some of them. They were, they, you know, they were doing their best to hold the line. And th- luckily for all of us, they did. But I don't want this to be like the push, you know, in 1933 with the Nazis that ends up, you know, the, the stage show for what happens afterwards. You have to go after these people. Yeah. And, and it's not uh, it's not at all clear what's going to happen. I mean, thank goodness. You were there to bear witness. Other people were there to bear witness because half of Congress, who was also under attack, is now pretending that nothing, nothing serious happened, which is it, which is a disgrace. That's not strong enough a word um, to describe their egregious anti-American behavior. And you're right. If there is not accountability, then I'm afraid that there's no there's no overcoming the uh, radical forces that are still very viable. And I think, it, I think in some ways we're in a worse place now than we were a year ago as a country. So I think, though, one of the reasons that we're still in danger is because the vast majority of the media continue to ask the wrong questions. Is, is Donald going to run? Wait, are you kidding me? Like, why would he ever be allowed to? Well, I don't think he will. You know, Michael Cohen, I talk to him and Michael Cohen says he doesn't think he's going to run. He's just caught. But it's a dangerous question because the premise of that question is that he should be allowed yeah. to. The, the, the real problem with that question is it doesn't even touch on the real issue. I don't want to know if Donald Trump is going to run. I want to know when Donald Trump is going to be indicted. And that's... <laughs> I want to know when he's going to be in prison. Yeah. But yes, exactly. Well, I don't want to get put the cart before the horse. It still is you know, innocent until proven guilty. Let's start with charged and indicted. And I, I completely agree. With that's you. where I, that's where I am. And I wrote a column for Salon. Uh, I guess it was two weeks ago. And you know, everyone keeps speculating on Donald. Is Donald doing this or Donald? I said, look, I'm sick to death of Donald Trump. I don't want to talk. He, he loves the attention. He sucks up all available oxygen in the room. There's only two times I want to report on Donald from here on out. If he declares a candidate and if and when he's indicted. And the rest of it, yeah. I don't care about his, his anti-American rallies. There are other people that already have taken that mantle. DeSantis and, and Boebert mm-hmm. and, and all those other morons. And I want to concentrate yeah. on the people who are actually in office and are accountable to us. He's just yeah. an idiot standing out in the wind, whistling in the breeze. Now, we need to keep track of him because he is a dangerous sure. nut. But I don't have to, and I don't want right. to, and I'm not going to do it. I'll save my energy for if the guy steps back out into the, 
you know, and, and I would love to be there asking him questions when he walks out of the court in shackles. I'd be love to <laughs> love to be there peppering him with a bundle of questions. Hey, you got caught, you moron! No, <laughs> I'll be there watching and enjoying myself. Um, so we we have to wrap up, unfortunately, but. Uh, I, I wanted to end, though, because, again, this, this is pretty heavy stuff and we are kind of in a dark place yeah. in, in a lot of ways. But one of the reasons I want people to read your book is because you do have you do have an idea, ideas about where we could go from here, how we can fix the institutions. You have a, a brilliant three point plan um, that everybody needs to know about. They also need to know that in addition to the, the wealth of great information and amazing stories. It's also really funny. Uh, so again, everybody needs to go out and buy free the press. And, but before, you know, we wrap up and tell people where they can find you, um, what gives you hope? Uh, well, I'm, I'm still above ground. So <laughs> there, there you go. Every day when I'm still above ground, I have hope. Um, right. it, it's, it's dangerous not to have hope. What are you going to do? Give up? I'm not giving in to Donald Trump. You know, I, I grew up with people in my neighborhood like him and they usually got the shit beat out of them after a, a few days of shooting their mouths off. So I have yeah. hope that, uh, American people by and large are more decent than Donald. And, um, if we can build bridges instead of walls, we'll be in a much better position. So I have hope. Look, Politics is supposed to be the mechanism by which we mutually solve our problems together. Even if we don't agree with how we get to the solutions, we agree on where we want to go. That's what politics has traditionally been. Not the, I, I disagree with you, I'm going to kill you, I'm a victim, you're an ass. That, that, that name calling is not an American tradition. What has facilitated politics working in the past was an unfettered and free press corps, the method by which we communicate with each other. And we need to make sure that we ensure that that survives. And one of the things I talk about in the book is that, look, people are all griping about bloggers and internet and this and that. Look, you're not going to get rid of them. That's not, you know, right. that's not going to happen. But perhaps if they adopted some of the, and even knew, most of them don't even know what it is that a journalist does and how we do it. If you introduced some of the fact-finding uh, standards into that world, which this does, and, and perhaps you would create a better world for everyone. So the idea is better communication. We're not gonna, we're not gonna solve any of our problems if we're fighting with each other all the time, we have to communicate. We have far more in common than we have different from one another. That's the truth. And that's a truth that the haves don't want the have-nots to understand. They would rather have you fighting against your own self-interest to further them, which a lot of people do. And that's one of the things that journalism does, level that playing field, make sure that people understand what's really going on, and then you'll find the kind men out and get rid of the fascists and get rid of, you know, the, the authoritarians. And that's that's my hope is that we can we can better work better together. Well, thank you. That actually made me feel better. <laughs> Good. And it, that's not an easy thing to do these days. So. 
Um, okay, so we know that you're writing uh, at Salon. Where can we find your podcast, Just Ask the Question, which, by the way, is awesome. And you've been on it twice, and I love having you. I have, yeah. and I have. Uh, just, ask, just Ask the Question wherever fine podcasts are found everywhere. iPod, <laughs> Apple, everywhere. It's everywhere. And then the book you can find at any bookstore. You can also order it online through Amazon. But if you're also, I'll make my pitch there for independent booksellers. If you go to independent booksellers, support them and their cause. Because like uh, journalists, they are threatened. And we need independent booksellers. Yeah. We need independence from uh, corporations when yeah. possible. So I'll support all of that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Jeff Bezos can have his uh, you know, 30 silver coins too, but the, the rest yeah. of the world needs money. So uh, that, that's where you can find it. You can find it online. And then I'm uh, on, what am I on? Twitter at, at Brian Karam. That's me on Twitter, me on uh, Instagram and TikTok and everywhere. Oh, you're on TikTok. Yeah. Fancy. <laughs> I don't even know how it works. Well, I'll so, put some. I stay away. I put some videos of me at the White House on there, and one of them went viral. I think the September twenty third thing went viral. I didn't have anything to do with it. I didn't. <laughs> I just asked the damn question, and they go, "Ah, this guy fried Donald." And so, <laughs> oh, that's great, Brian. This has been wonderful. I so appreciate your coming on. Sure, it's always fun, um, and uh, we will stay in touch. Yeah, absolutely. I owe you a hat. Uh, well, you actually don't owe me a hat, but I would really love for you to give me a hat. <laughs> that's a good, I love a good fedora, and that's one of my favorite hats. A story for another time. <laughs> Brian Karam, thank you so much. Stay safe. You too. And now we come to one of my favorite parts of the show where I get to answer your questions. If you want to ask me anything, please send an email to all one word, the Mary Trump show at politicon.com. And I'll get to as many of your questions as I can. Uh, first up, we have a question from Brian. Why do you think people are slamming on Harris for comparing the January 6th insurrection to 9-11 in Pearl Harbor? Why can't they see that event as a threat to democracy that it was? Well, I think any time there's seemingly absurd criticism of Vice President Harris, we cannot discount the misogyny and the racism behind the criticisms. Why anybody would have a problem with her comparing what happened on January 6th to September 11th or Pearl Harbor is beyond me. The only reason it's different, really, um, because in all three instances, uh, you know, our country was seriously threatened. Um, and I would argue that it was only on uh, January 6th that our democracy was threatened. Is because the people attacking our government were Americans. And the people urging them on was the man in the White House. So... I think people get defensive when people get defensive about uh, January 6th and calling it what it was, which was terrorism. um, We have to consider their motives for doing so, because she's absolutely right. In fact, I think in some ways, January 6th was worse because it's still not over and we have yet to see what is going to come of it. And also, unlike September 11th and Pearl Harbor, Instead of uniting this country, it is dividing us even more than we'd already been divided. From Ariana in Prague, Czechoslovakia. 
I heard that some Republicans have a plan where if they win back the Congress after the midterms, they want to name Donald Trump Speaker of the House. Do you think this atrocity would be possible? Would he do it? Yeah, it's possible. You do not have to be a member of Congress in order to be named Speaker of the House. You could be named Speaker of the House. Um, Well, if you were an American citizen, you could be. Uh, In fact, I used to joke around that um, Hillary Clinton should have been named Speaker of the House and then uh, installed as president. But I was only kidding. Um, I would not put it past this Republican Party. Uh, Kevin McCarthy has another thing coming to him if he thinks he's getting that job to get the soonest possible opportunity Uh, he will be replaced by somebody more sycophantic and more fanatical. Um, The question I have is whether or not Donald would accept, because in his his view, because he doesn't really understand how government works, that would be potentially beneath him. Now, it it is a demotion, certainly, but... Uh, the Speaker of the House is one of the most powerful people in the country and the second in line to the presidency. So uh, if tragedy were to strike and a Republican were to win uh, the White House in 2024 and for some reason Donald decided not to run, um, then, yeah, they could just uh, that that person could step down and, and Donald could take his or her place. So uh, frightening, frightening things to think about. Um, the fact that it's possible, I think it's extremely unlikely, though. I'm much more worried um, that he just runs and somehow cheats his way into the Oval Office again. From Amanda, why not fight fire with fire and use Democratic dark money to make Joe Manchin an offer he can't refuse? Just give him more money. Find out if he fancies an ambassadorship. He must have something. Just pay him off. Amanda, I have floated this idea for a while now, and I would also include Kirsten Cinema in this as well. They are clearly being paid off to do the wrong thing. Their stance vis-a-vis the filibuster, mansion stance vis-a-vis the child tax credit, which apparently he thinks parents shouldn't get because they're just going to use the money to buy drugs. These are not positions that are philosophical. These are not positions uh, that they've arrived at with any integrity. They are bought and paid for. I think in Manchin's case, probably the coal industry and big oil. In Manchin's case, I think it's the pharmaceutical industry. Whatever. I don't care. My question, your question if they are already be, being paid off to do the wrong thing, why can't the DNC shoot the lock off its wallet and give them even more money to do the right thing? I would have no problem with that because you know they have shown time and time again that they are not serious people. They do not care about the American people. They do not deserve to be in a, the positions of power they're in, which, by the way, is simply a fluke. Um, so failing that, cause I think it's probably won't happen. Um, we just have to hope that the Democrats win in 2022 and increase the number of Democrats in the Senate. So mansion and cinema become irrelevant, which is 
exactly the fate they both deserve. From Angeline, Chicago, Illinois. Donald talks up the vaccine and takes undue credit for it, with Democrats acknowledging that Operation Warp Speed occurred on his watch. But Donald underplayed the threat the virus presented in early 2020, refused masks, and hosted super spreader events at the White House and epic super spreader rallies. Why is that being glossed over? Very good question. I, I don't quite understand why so much has been let slide. I, you know, I know this has been happening for decades. You know, that's how Donald got where he was because it wasn't that his, his wrongdoing accumulated. It's like one bad thing happened and then the next bad thing happened and everybody forgot about the, the first bad thing. Um, but this is, this is uh, on an entirely different scale. Because of him, almost a million, I, I have trouble even saying that, it's so horrifying, almost a million Americans are dead because of him. And I don't mean because he made mistakes. I mean because he made the willful, malevolent decision to put the economy over people's lives. He made the willful, malevolent decision to divide us against each other at a time when we needed to be united. So, um, and, and by the way, all of that was in service to protecting his ego because he could not be associated with something negative like a disease and he could not course correct, which in his mind is admitting he was wrong. So that, that to me is a mystery that we need to solve I don't care if he takes credit for the vaccine. If it gets other people to get vaccinated, great. If it, you know, puts a divide in the Republican Party, great. Because obviously that puts him uh, in opposition to most elected Republicans like DeSantis, who have been um, telling people not to get vaccinated or not to trust the vaccine. There is a committee uh, looking into the, the last administration's handling of the pandemic. I'm not sure why we haven't heard more from them, but I, I sincerely hope that they're digging deep because, yes, Donald should absolutely be held accountable for what happened on January 6th. He's directly responsible for it. Um, and it was traitorous. And, uh, you know, that's, that's among the worst things that you can do, especially when you're the person who's supposed to be leading the country. However, I think um, almost a million deaths is worse. From Mary Kay, I don't know how to effectively talk to people who dismiss the January 6th insurrection with ignorant comments like only one person died. I don't want to just shake my head in bewilderment. What response might open someone up to investigating their information bias further? First of all, five people died. Um, and I think in excess of 140 Capitol Police officers were injured, some of them grievously what I, I, I wouldn't really have a conversation so much as I would urge these people to watch the video. I think both the New York Times and the Washington Post have put together uh, videos that cover almost the entire insurrection from the speeches to the end of it. Um, you can't argue with the fact that there was violence, that there were weapons, that these anti-American creeps 
were flying the Confederate flag in our capital, that they were desecrating our capital, that they were threatening the lives of our elected officials, including the vice president and the Speaker of the House. It is all on video. We have documentary evidence. Uh, so that's where I would start. The second thing I would have them do is to watch the testimony of the four Capitol police officers, which was not just compelling, it was heartbreaking. Um, so that would be, that, that, that's what I would do. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Mary Trump Show. And I want to thank Brian Karam for spending so much quality time with us today. You can send your questions to me for next week's show by email to all one word, the Mary Trump Show at politicon.com or look for the address in the show notes. I'd really love to hear from you. You can also follow The Mary Trump Show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please give us a five-star review. It really helps other people find the show. See you next week and stay safe.